Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings and welcome to New Books in History. I am your host, Monica Black, and today I have the distinct pleasure of talking with Karin Henschew about her book, Terror and Democracy in West Germany, which was just published in 2012 by Cambridge University Press. The book deals with the consequences for West German democracy of the left-wing terror that engulfed that country in the 1970s. In West Germany in September and October of 1977, a group of self-described urban guerrillas of the Red Army Faction, or RAF, kidnapped industrialist Hans-Martin Schleier. In exchange for Schleier, the kidnappers demanded the release of their imprisoned leaders, Andreas Bader and Gudrun Enslin. Those months in 1977 are often referred to as the German Autumn, and they represent in some ways a crescendo of leftist political violence that had its origins almost a decade before. Terror prompted a crisis in the 1970s for the West German government and for German democracy. Of course, 1977 was not the first time in history that a German republic had been tested by a group of radicals intending to bring it down. That had already happened in the 1930s. But 1977 turned out very differently than 1933, when the Nazis captured power in a profoundly embattled and dysfunctional democracy. In fact, as Professor Hanshu argues in her fascinating book, quote, West Germany's terrorist crisis helped to usher in the relatively stable civil society that still defines Germany today, end quote. Karin Henshu is Associate Professor of History at Michigan State University, and I am absolutely delighted to have the chance to speak with her today about her book and about the meaning of the German autumn for German democracy. Welcome, Karin. Thank you very much, Monica. Yeah, it's really nice to talk to you, and, and I just found your book wonderful and fascinating. Thank you. I appreciate hearing that. Uh, good, good. Um, listen, I wonder if you could get us started by telling us a little about, bit about yourself, about your, your background, maybe about your education, anything that our listeners might, might uh, find interesting. Uh, sure. Well, I, I got my degree uh, from the University of Chicago in, in Modern European History, um, I came to this project kind of uh, around about through a seminar I took there, um, and it sent me, obviously, to Europe um, to do field work. Uh, I spend a lot of time in Amsterdam. Um, there's an institute of social history there that everyone should go to, in my opinion. It's a fabulous uh, kind of treasure trove of, of left history. Um, spent a good deal of time in party archives. Um, and then just, I mean, my project, uh, this book definitely draws on a lot of um, non-archival sources. So there was a, a definitely some kind of screen about uh, basements of Berlin, um, looking in old, old uh, journals and whatnot. Um, and, I mean, uh, what more do I say? Uh, well, let me, yeah. maybe, let, I mean, me let me ask you something. Got, excuse me? No, I, I was, along the lines of sources, I was just wondering about... Um, 
I mean, the, just just as a point of curiosity, you know, the, the the privacy laws, of course, are very strict in in Germany concerning the particularly the recent past and and the access that scholars can have to documents. Right? So was that in any way difficult for you? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Uh, it meant that yeah, government documents of any kind were off limits. I mean, when I first went over. Um, I mean, I know the archivists uh, basically threw up their hands and said, we have nothing for you. So that is in some ways what shaped this project um, in that I, I then determined very early on that I was going to look at the public debate about terrorism, about violence that occurred, largely because I wasn't going to get at the, the, the uh, kind of behind the doors debate. I mean, gradually that has opened up um, and I've gotten more and, and I, found, I found ways to get around it in that... Um, uh, private papers, um, say, of Hans-Jürgen Vogel, who was the interior minister. His stuff was already open and, and readable at uh, the Social Democratic Archive. So there were ways to get around it, but absolutely, the 30-year ban um, is a significant one and, and certainly um, determined the course of, of, of what I did. Yeah, I can imagine. Maybe, Karin, could you tell us, you know, some of our li- listeners will be familiar with uh, with this kind of um, history of left-wing violence, left-wing political violence in the 1970s, not just, of course, in West Germany, but, of course, in Italy, the United States, and other places, too. But I wonder if, as a background, for those folks who are less familiar with this history, if you could tell us a bit about what the German autumn was and why that's sort of a culminating point, in some ways, of a process that had been set in train uh, years beforehand, actually. Yeah, Sure. Um, I mean, the German autumn, so just maybe to first think about it in popular memory, um, uh, the German autumn is, is remembered as uh, a time of crisis, largely. Um, some people describe it as a, a time of hysteria, uh, where Germans were basically, I mean, kind of German democracy hung in the balance. Um, people waited around to see basically if the state was going to revert to, to kind of its fascist authoritarian uh, tendencies and, and come down um, uh, very hard in, uh, in its attempts to, to confront terrorism, um, basically destroy democracy in its attempt to supposedly save it. Um, others kind of waited with bated breath um, to basically see if the state just utterly failed, um, not because it was uh, too strong, but because it was too weak. Um, so there's a lot of, I mean, you get the, a lot of past and present um, kind of fears running uh, amok, basically, in, in the German autumn, um, where uh, people don't really, aren't really confident, aren't sure what is going to happen because they're not really, well, they're not confident about the state itself whether the Federal Republic of Germany or the FRG has really accomplished its task uh, to become a a democratic Germany, um, or if it has these kind of lingering fascist tendencies that will come out in times of crisis. Um, And others look and would point to the the terrorists, uh, the left-wing radicals who basically take up uh, guns in 1970, declare war on Germany because they see it as a fascist uh, state. Um, Many of them, many, many West Germans uh, in in the late 70s are increasingly convinced that it's it's these these terrorists, these so-called urban guerrillas that are are the real fascists. Um, and, And there's a great fear that the state can't control them um, and that it will be brought down just like it was in Weimar. 
so during the 1930s, as you, you uh, mentioned in, in, in your introduction, um, that we're going to get a repeat of Weimar um, and the destruction of democracy by these fringe radicals. And so really the German autumn, I mean, it's this amazing moment where, or as I conceive of it, um, where Germans are, are fighting um, the phantoms of the past, whether it's national socialism or, or the collapse of Weimar, just as much as they are, are uh, fighting the present um, terrorist attacks. Uh, and it's a lot, in my mind, about just trying to see, um, kind of distinguish truth, truth, whatever, uh, you know, the reality um, from, from these, these, um, these, these past fears, these lingering fears about democracy in Germany. Yeah, so the ghosts of the past are, the con- the past. are, are very much present in, this, in all the debates about terrorism in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Is, can you say, uh, I mean, I know this is a, a bit of a, mm, this is a very fractious topic, uh, without a doubt, but I wonder if you can say something about um, what is the relationship, I mean, th- that, that, that uh, left-wing political violence begins in the early 70s uh, is important because, of course, there is some kind of link between the student movement and what comes after. But I, I, I realize this is a very contentious subject, but could you maybe, just for, for people who maybe are a little bit less familiar, could you say something about that debate? Yeah, I throw myself on the fire here. Um. <laughs> no, no, no. You don't have, just, just tell us what the two sides claim okay. about it, maybe. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, um, so the first attack... Uh, could be said to have actually started uh, to have taken place in 1968. Uh, Gudrun Ensling and Andreas Bader, uh, uh, along with two others, set fire to two department stores in Frankfurt um, in kind of solidarity with Vietnam, with the declaration that, I mean, with the intent of bringing the war home, to kind of shake West Germans um, out of their kind of complacency. Um, it's certainly... Uh, I mean, that, that act um, uh, comes, I mean, is, is very much at home with kind of conversations, frustrations that are occurring in the student movement, um, dis- growing disillusionment um, with West Germany's ongoing support of American um, actions in Vietnam. So the, the first act of terror definitely comes out of conversations um, and critiques of, of present day society, consumer society as well as West German society in particular. Um, and, and really, I mean, I guess I see, for me, the student movement, I mean, um, and actually I would, I would want to broaden it, the, the protests of the 60s you know, involved an incredibly wide variety of, of actors. So maybe you know, critical older leftists um, uh, born long before the baby boomers can join the spectrum of, of of middle-aged to, to younger, uh, to definitely student-aged um, protesters. Um, and, you know, they start very peacefully. Um, they confront police trenches. Uh, a lot of police violence. Protests increasingly get more and more violent. In the late 60s, you reach kind of a crisis point um, when they are not achieving any of their goals. And the question of how do we... Um, move things forward? How do we accomplish? Uh, how do we get our voices heard? How do we defend democracy from what we perceive to be undemocratic um, kind of status quo uh, um, personalities? Um, 
And the question of violence comes up then and there. Um, in that the question here is, I mean, there's a strong sense on the left um, that every German citizen after 1945 has a, a responsibility, a duty to resist fascism, the resurgence of, of authoritarian behavior in, in any form, um, and that this, this includes violent resistance. Um, and I mean, I, I think this is not, I mean, this becomes um, something that, that former student activists uh, uh, are, are kind of loath to, uh, to embrace, uh, that they would have ever contemplated violence. But I think, it, honestly, it's rather understandable if you think that the, the monster you're potentially facing is, is fascism uh, or, or some approximation of it. Um, and if the stakes are democracy itself, I actually... I don't think that's so beyond beyond the pale. Um, but anyway, it becomes a point of strategy, a big strategy debate at the end of the 60s. The vast, vast, vast majority of protesters reject violence. Um, not so, so much on principle, but looking around, they just don't think the conditions in West Germany are such that we're at that moment where revolution is essentially called for. Um, but a small group such as the RAF, the Red Army Faction, um, as well as the 2nd of June movement, decide differently. Basically, they're so frustrated and have concluded that, uh, as Gudrun Ensing says, there's no talking to this generation, the older generation, the Auschwitz generation, um, that only action uh, will will kind of solve uh, the crisis. Um, So they break off. Um, you could say, kind of from the mainstream protest movement um, and, and take up war. Um, because they have uh, so much of a political uh, history, social history, a lot of the, the social networks uh, that the, the ROF comes out of are, are these old protest networks. Um, uh, there's, uh, I mean, they have a lot of sympathy um, from, from this kind of extra-parliamentary left um, because they share these student you know, student movement ties, um, but also because a lot of their critiques of, of current society seem to be dead on. Um, and because there is a lot of suspicion that the state is not particularly democratic, or at least it's not living up to its democratic ideals. Um, so I, I feel that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I mean, they, they do have their roots there. Um, the, the hot flash point of debate is basically that this then in itself becomes an issue uh, and, and a fighting point. When they're trying to deal with terrorism, conservatives um, definitely blame then the student movement, kind of eager to roll back kind of the, the cultural revolution of the 60s. Um, conservatives definitely point the finger at then the protests uh, of the 60s uh, and lay a lot of blame for the violence of the 70s on the on, um, the goals uh, and politics of the 60s. And for, for very clear reasons, uh, uh, you can imagine um, activists of the 60s are rather resistant uh, to being uh, fingered for that one. So that's, that's basically where the debate uh, um, uh, breaks down. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have that background. I'm sure that that will, um, I mean, that, that, that background certainly informs, informs your book uh, in, in very important ways, I think. And I think maybe if, if I could ask you now about another aspect of background, another aspect of the kind of crucial historical context here, um, which is, 
And I think this is one of the great strengths of your book. The more I think about it, I think this is, this is one of the most important things. That, you know, there's an assumption that in, in, it's not just an assumption. I mean, it's a real thing. In the 1970s, that people, uh, that their fears were clearly informed by the um, semi-recent past of the 1930s. But actually, there are ways in which debates about democracy and what democracy was and what, whether or not it was good for Germany were much older than the debates in the 1970s, certainly, and, and debates in the 1930s. They went back a lot further than that. And I wondered if maybe you could talk about uh, some of that background, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, yeah, you could say that Germans' troubled past or, or troubled relationship with democracy is uh, very longstanding. Uh, uh, it's always, uh, I mean, you could start back with the French Revolution uh, and, and when the kind of air of democracy first blew over uh, the German lands. Um, and there was, I mean, even though it, I mean, Germans don't get a democratic republic until 1918, um, they talked about it a lot, debated its pros and cons and whether it was fit uh, for, for the German lands. And, and, and Germany, um, once it u- united in uh, 1871, um, and by and large, people said no. And of course, these are elites who probably aren't incredibly interested um, in letting go of, of not just um, you know, the same people who are pushing for, for liberal constitutions are also leery of, of opening um, government to, to the masses. Uh, and some of this has to do with Germany's kind of uh, geopolitical situation. There's a sense that, I mean, uh, a universal sense, not one just for, for Germans, um, but that democracy is, when it comes down to it, a rather weak uh, government. In that, I mean, at times of crisis, and, and this is the sticking point, uh, at times of crisis, democracy is really inefficient. It's slow. Parliamentary democracy gets in the way of, of quick, decisive action. Um, and, and basically for the Germans, uh, wedged between France and, and Russia, there's a sense that they just don't have that luxury. The democracy is very much a luxury, a peacetime uh, 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 luxury. Um, and Germany as an embattled um, uh, country uh, it's, it's just not really a good place for it. Now after 1945 um, there are no alternatives. Um, and so de- so whether they are really sold on democracy or not uh, West Germans uh, embrace it as the one answer. Uh, the Allies make it pretty clear they don't have another one. Um, but even so, um, there's this lingering doubt, and, and Weimar's collapse does nothing to help this. There's this lingering doubt that a democracy cannot withstand um, uh, 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 a moment of, it, of, of, of crisis, uh, cannot endure, um, uh, say, war, revolt, internal revolt, revolt or, or economic crisis. Um, and all their experience with with democracy, however short it was, kind of confirms this for them. Um, so this, in a way, I mean, this is the lingering, yeah, much longer historical uh, kind of ghost, you could say, I guess, the Germans are, are battling against. Um, this fear that, uh, whether it's because there aren't enough Germans who are Democrats or because the state itself um, as a democracy is too weak, that if it... it, it confronted with a state of exception, um, that it will just collapse. 
Right. Yes. And uh, one of the, I mean, I thought one of the interesting responses, or what, how shall I put this? One of the um, really interesting chapters in your book, and this is going back again to the question of, of roots, of what happened in the 1970s, uh, the roots of discourses about democracy and particular forms of democracy and what democracy's responses can be legitimately to, yeah. to terror and violence, whether internal or external. Um, one of the really interesting chapters, and, and one from which I learned the most, I would have to say in your book, was, uh, was a discussion that you had about militant democracy, which is a, really a key term in your book. And you talk about the development of the idea of d- militant democracy by, in, in particular, German emigre scholars, uh, people who had been forced to leave Germany in the Nazi era. And I wonder if you could talk about those emigres and their ideas about militant democracy and why that's kind of a key word for you in this book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in militant democracy, the way I see it is that militant democracy and um, resistance are kind of two sides of the same coin. They are the answers that Germans come up with in, in 1945, specifically 1949, and so West Germans come up with um, to answer this fundamental kind of distrust that democracy uh, can withstand its enemies. Um, so Widerstand, resistance, is, is the civilian answer. Everyone's, uh, that the population itself must mobilize to protect democracy. If you don't have Democrats, you don't have a democracy. Um, and then the other, um, the one that's codified and, um, uh, and, and is the basis for the Westerman constitution is militant democracy. So even today, uh, Germany it considers itself a, a, a militant democracy. And the term is coined, as you say, uh, by two immigrants, um, uh, Karl Löwenstein and Karl Mannheim, um, in in the late 30s, early 40s. Um, so at the time um, that actually the fascism um, is at its height. Uh, uh, they're looking, kind of diagnosing the problem. Why did all these lovely little democracies that bloomed in the interwar period uh, fall away so quickly? And why is fascism, and they're also often looking at, at Soviet communism, why is Soviet communism so popular? Um, and how can democracy kind of re- recalibrate itself to become a real contender uh, once more in, in this ideological battle. Um, so Lovenstein and Mannheim have different answers to this. And, and in a way, the reason why I lay this down in the book is because, roughly speaking, the conservatives, uh, so in Parliament, the Christian Democrats, uh, map onto Lovenstein's uh, kind of vision of militant democracy and, roughly speaking, the Social Democrats map onto Mannheim's. Um, and so kind of just um, briefly, like, I guess I would say that the two kinds of militant democracy uh, that are pursued um, are one, um, the Lobensteinian one, the con- Christian democratic one, um, is one that conceives of, of crisis um, as something to be managed temporarily um, and to not kind of wring your hands too much about if you have to um, temporarily put aside democratic uh, principles. It's an emer- I guess I would say the first kind is a very emergency management. Um, devil, well, devil may care, that's not quite true. But it, it's basically, you know, we're not going to let democracy hang by its principles. Um, so it's a very pragmatic 
in the moment of crisis, it is perfectly acceptable to put parliamentary power uh, on hold so as to empower the executive, because ultimately, by putting power in the hands of one strong man, we can most effectively manage um, the state of exception. Um, they also then, uh, um, Lobenstein and, and then the Christian Democrats later, um, tend to find it perfectly acceptable um, to temporarily suspend certain civil liberties. Uh, again, I mean, this is all about trying to figure out how you're going to effectively confront your enemies. And they all have Weimar in their head um, and the way the Nazis used democracy, used their civil liberties to destroy democracy. Mm. So Lovenstein and, and the Christian Democrats are very keen on denying, basically, uh, enemies those tools. Um, so civil liberties, like freedom of speech, uh, censorship, this sort of thing is perfectly fine in the moment. Um, and then certainly coercive force, um, uh, whether that is, uh, you know, harsher um, criminal sentencing, um, extended police powers, what have you. So that's, that's the one side. And you, you could say it's, it's kind of the strong arming, but swift acting uh, kind of form of militant democracy. Um, and it's definitely the one that then, if you talk about militant democracy today, that's probably the form most people think of. The Christian Democrats are in power um, until 1969, so they really basically get the chance to kind of um, establish their version of militant democracy. Now, the Social Democrats, kind of following the path of Mannheim, um, understand that militant democracy, the way to make a, a democracy militant, um, should they pursue it as a more holistic project. Um, they're very keen on, on, on uh, making sure that parliament, as opposed to the executive, is the guarantor of, of, of the state. Um, but really, they're in it for the long haul. They don't think of this as a temporary situation. Um, they think that the best defense of democracy comes from entrenching democracy in the institutions and in the people. Um, so you could say they're, they're really keen on social engineering is what, what they are. Um, Political education is one of their major tools. Uh, again, they really believe that if you do not have a population that will fight for democracy, you might as well throw in the towel. Um, so they're very, they're very intent on on making Democrats essentially active Democrats. Um, they're also um, for prevention. Social Democrats and Monheim would basically just like like to rule out the whole option of crisis. They would like to avoid <laughs> the situation altogether. Um, and so they feel like tinkering with um, basically uh, creating the right social conditions um, will, will help eliminate that, that possibility. Uh, so economic crisis can be eliminated by using the state to you know, redistribute uh, 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 income. Um, uh, the state can be used in all sorts of, I guess, ways to kind of manage society um, and then hopefully preclude the idea of crisis altogether. So, yes, yeah, so we have a temporary um, kind of strong arming, a swift uh, form of militant democracy on one side. And then we have this kind of long deray. Uh, let's prevent it altogether. Um, but uh, by using the state um, and uh, to help create a democratic culture. You know, reading that, reading that part of your book and reading about Mannheim and Löwenstein and learning all of that, 
Um, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that was one of the that was one of the great benefits for me of reading your book was that I it made me think about our own present differently. And in a way, I think that that's the great uh, contribution of you know what the Germans call contemporary history, right? Mm-hmm. The, the history of the very recent past is that it, uh, your book helped me think about our own present in the United States and in the world, really, um, in, in light of uh, recent events of terrorism and political violence in, in, in different ways. It, it, helped, it gave me different tools for seeing um, what's happened in our own country. And, and, uh, and, so, uh, and so I really I want to thank you for that. That was wow. very, very helpful for well, me. Well, if that's true, then I, I'm that right there. I'm glad I wrote the book. Thank you. <laughs> right, absolutely. I wonder if you could say uh, kind of in that, in that vein – uh, one of the central, maybe the central claim of your book is that terror, as I said at the outset of our conversation, the terror of the late 70s in West Germany in some ways helped to create the stable, and I, I think of, of the Federal Republic as an imminently stable civil society, uh, an imminently stable democracy. Um, and I wonder if uh, you could explain for the listeners exactly how that works out. I mean, how does terror help produce, in a certain sense, a stable democracy? Yeah, it's it's a bizarre claim. Um, well, so first I should say that for the left especially, they do not experience, uh, say, the German autumn and this confrontation with terrorism uh, in in a, in a positive light. And they, to this day, would find my interpretation of its contribution probably a bit at odds with their experiences. Um, but, you know, having the privilege of stepping back and putting um, the German autumn in this much longer context. Um, I can say that, I mean, this, this uncertainty about democracy and this constant questioning. I mean, so I, I said, you know, they set up these two kind of answers to the perceived weaknesses of democracy uh, in 1949. Uh, They've got the militant democracy and, and uh, resistance and this creates essentially a dynamic uh, in, in West Germany, uh, post-war West Germany, where you could say just of hyper-vigilance. Uh, I mean, Germans are looking for the state to either prove itself too weak, too strong, um, for signs of fascism to erupt, whether in the population or within the government. Um, and so it's a, in a way, it's a police policed and self-policing society. Everyone is, is very nervous, for good reason. Um, uh, that kind of the failure to make a, a sharp break with with national socialism um, means that they have uh, failed to kind of um, well put to bed the, the possibilities of fascism's uh, revival in the future. So for me, in the in the German autumn, um, why this becomes such a kind of turning point um, is that a lot of these questions are ultimately worked through or answered, kind of in, in ultimately in the heat of the moment, in, in crisis. I mean, the extra-parliamentary left, who I talked about, is, is having definite political sympathies uh, with, with the ROF, with the terrorists, even if they don't actually support their, their actions. Um, they're forced to basically confront whether or not the state is, is illegitimate, um, you know, they're in a moment of whether of, uh, that they have to decide, okay, is this like, you know, 1933? Is this the moment where Widerstand, where resistance is absolutely necessary because the state is fascist? Or is this a liberal democracy, which I may not be so keen on, and I certainly, it's not my 
uh, ideal definition of democracy, but is it legitimate? Um, and I think, you know, by, by, by experiencing the dynamic of escalating violence, um, because you have, you have the terrorist attack and then you have the, the state counterattack, right? And it, and it just keeps, I mean, one of the things that uh, uh, everyone can agree on is that, that the Roth um, helped arm the state, no doubt about it, um, because with each attack, um, the state kind of, uh, you know, passed another sort of measure um, in an attempt to, to regain control. So so the, the extra-parliamentary left, the people who had stood out, and it's not an insignificant part of the population, it's certainly not a majority, no way, but not insignificant minority of people who had stood back kind of this whole time, skeptical of the legitimacy of the state, you could say have a certain kind of pragmatic clarity where they realize that... Um, Resistance is not in this form is certainly not called for, um, and that that their constant kind of standing outside of mainstream society, um, and and kind of fantasies of the need for for violent resistance have have prevented um, them from well from from what they they hope to achieve in in many ways from engaging with mainstream society and changing it. Um, so for me, the, the experience of terrorism um, forces kind of a reconceptualization of what resistance is uh, in the FRG or what it can be. Before, um, it was something always in opposition to the state. After, after the late 70s, you see a real turning, a real attempt to re-engage um, and in a sense that um, that, that basically the state is reformable um, so that you can work uh, within it. Uh, and so you see a re-engagement of, of mainstream society through the founding, say, most notoriously of the, the Greens Party, um, which definitely is a product. It's not an accident that one of their platforms is nonviolence. Um, they come out of this moment. So does the, the leftist um, uh alternative uh, newspaper, the Tots. So that's kind of one uh, reconceptualization of, of democracy as it, as it exists in the FRG that occurs. And then I, I see similar um, kind of uh, um, clarification of, of the, the state of things uh, uh, on, what, well, on the right, so for, for um, conservatives as well as social democrats. I mean, for conservatives, you could say just the fact that the state actually succeeded um, in confronting terrorism, um, that it was not brought down. Um, for, some, for some conservatives, especially on the far right, this in itself is revelatory um, and really calms a lot of these constant um, fears and this, this dialogue that the state needs to, to be arming itself. And, and the conservatives throughout the terrorist um, uh, crisis, uh, not just the German autumn, but since, since the first attack, have been spurring uh, the social Democrats who are in government on and critiquing them for, for being too soft uh, on terrorism, essentially. Um, and in a way, the, the, the Christian Democrats um, sit back for a second and, and, and can appreciate uh, well, they probably don't appreciate, but at least they know that the state hasn't collapsed. Um, uh, there has been no right-wing coup then, uh, military coup. Um, and so, so 33, uh, or in that case, 1920, has not occurred again. 
the Social Democrats um, have their own kind of reckoning, and this is getting long-winded, so I'll try to <laughs> summarize a little faster, but uh, the Social Democrats, um, you know, their conception of, of militant democracy, uh, which really um, is best understood as uh, internal security, is kind of their program for, for militant democracy that they instituted in 69. Um, you know, they had put... The Social Democrats are kind of in between the conservatives and and the extra parliamentary left, uh, not just in obvious ways, but also in that they're split. They they have a lot of faith in the state, but at the same time, they distrust it. Um, they see that democracy can be harmed both by the population and by by a too strong state, by the abuse of state power. Mm. Um, so they lay down very specific lines on what what they find acceptable for a government to do in confronting its enemies. Originally, they, they say civil liberties are completely off the table. We will not suspend uh, civil liberties. Um, they're very against the use of, of coercive force, various things. Um, they prefer to kind of continue to perfect laws um, and, and to perfect police uh, power, so pre- preventative policing, um, than, than to move closer to the CDU's uh, and Lovenstein's answers. Um, but a lot of this starts starts to change. Uh, and I would say in, in, in the German autumn, you see most of their kind of previous um, limits uh, fall by the wayside. Uh, in the moment of, of kind of confronting terrorism, uh, and specifically in, in the German autumn, um, they they basically, I mean, they, they help pass a law, um, the, the contact ban, so that completely undermines uh, the, the suspected terrorist and the con- uh, convicted terrorist rights to, to attorney because um, uh, it cuts them off completely from the outside world. I mean, they make these radical decisions to undermine civil liberties. Um, and in, in the final act, they actually mobilize German paramilitary power um, abroad for the first time in West German history. So they actually mobilize uh, the GSG-9 um, in an effort, a successful effort, to rescue the hijacked um, plane Lanshut. Uh, that's kind of the, 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 the culmination and end of, of this spectacular terrorist crisis. Um, so, so in that, I mean, they, they come to basically, I mean, the Social Democrats have always, um, have always fought uh, suspicions that they are not incredibly loyal uh, to, the, mm. to the state. I mean, this goes back to the 19th century. I mean, socialists, you know, whether they're internationalists, they're not good, you know, they're not strong Germans. Or because, again, they're constantly, um, well, they are critics of, of, um, of militarism, of, of a lot of German history. Um, you know, they're, they're always, the card that the conservatives always whipped out was basically, you know, the Social Democrats, um, they're socialists, so they are, they're uh, suspicious in the beginning, but they also just, they're not capable of governing. And this is what the SP Day then uh, kind of for them, this is their crowning moment by confronting terrorism in 77 uh, uh, successfully. Um, they prove that they are a party that is not afraid to govern. And Brandt, uh, Willy Brandt, um, the party leader, uh, con- consistently, consistently calls upon them to prove, prove this great act. And they do so in ways some of their own kind of self-doubts are dispelled. But ultimately, um, 
I think, you know, it's often interpreted the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats, ex-parliamentary left, all these changes or all of this comes about from fear, that people are acting on plain fear um, or hysteria, as I mentioned earlier. And I think the Social Democrats, I think they're basically, I mean, maybe they drank their own Kool-Aid, but they think (laughs) that they have actually successfully democratized the state. Um, In their 10 years in power, this, that holistic kind of approach um, uh, to militant democracy that I talked about earlier, um, they put in a program for pursuing that. And I think that they're able to, to mobilize a military, paramilitary force um, and, and to kind of clamp down on civil rights because they've convinced themselves that, the West, Germ- that West Germany is more democratic than it was 10 years before. Um, and that they're their their GSG nine um, in their blue jeans and black leather jackets are nothing like the Prussians uh, and certainly not Nazis. Certainly not the Gestapo. Not the Gestapo. Or some right. Yeah. 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 No. So the entire political. Land, I mean, that's what that's such a fascinating you know f- artifact of this moment is that the entire political landscape is so transformed. I mean, from the from the far left to the far right. Um, I wonder if you could, as one of a sort of uh, uh, maybe a point of interest about contemporary German society, about society today in the FRG, uh, is the German autumn a topic? I mean, it's one of those things. It's so interesting to me as a person, you know, spends a lot of time in Germany, spends a lot of time reading about Germany, how often, particularly I would say in the last 10 years, it's been really amazing. How mm-hmm. often, you know, you see art exhibits that have to do with the RAF and that history or films having been made about the Bader Meinhof gang, uh, uh, so-called. And I wonder if you could um, tell us a little bit about what the meaning of the German autumn is for people in the Federal Republic today. What's the memory of it or, or how, how do people engage with it, if at all, today? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, um, you know, part of my task when I started this project was in a way figuring out why it was such a topic of conversation still, why it lingered on but yet, you know, there was no sense of why it was so important. There was just, you know, so is it just nostalgia? Um, you know, is it terrorist chic? I mean, uh, there was definitely kind of a whole fashion um, uh, made after uh, the, the, the bottom Meinhof um, uh, aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so then I, I, I've attempted to come up with my, my own answer to this question, but it's, you know, the way people remember it, um, I mean, a lot of them, you know, self-described leftists remember it as a very dark moment, mm. I think, as a whole. At least, you know, it's, it's a, for them, it's a time of government repression. Um, you know, the flip side of, of trying to create active Democrats is anyone who doesn't really adhere to your definition of Democrat um, you know, under, under the lines of militant democracy, which is, um, in its definition, it is not neutral. It is, is not passive. It mm. is very actively promoting its own agenda. Um, in actively promoting its agenda, you get a hunt for sympathizers that both the government and conservatives really participate in the 70s. That is the memory for a lot of leftists. Um, sense of censorship, a fear of, of speaking their mind. Um, uh, so, 
And then it's, it's, I think, though, the reason why it still lives on is because it is one of these first battlegrounds for, for defining the legacy of 1968. Mm. Um, so, you know, Meinhof... Um, she has two daughters, uh, Ulrika Meinhof, and one of her daughters has been really, I mean, the conservatives love her. Uh, she, in, in un, rather uh, untimely moments, um, she will bring out some, some, some picture. Uh, so uh, famously in 2001, a picture of Yoshka Fischer, who is the uh, minister of, um, what do we call this? Uh, uh, oh, foreign minister. Foreign minister, thank you. No, okay. <laughs> As a foreign minister at the time, um, she she hauls out a picture of him um, hitting a, a policeman over the head with uh, a rock or whatever, um, and she'll release interesting tidbits about her mom. Usually, uh, only only basically as part of what feels like a smear campaign to sixty eighters. Um, the conservatives have definitely done uh, their best um, to to draw a direct link um, from ter- uh, between terrorism and the student movement. And that is still what these debates tend to be about. It's mm. this hashing out of what this connection is. And I think, um, I mean, the fact that uh, these art exhibits still have such a resonance, I mean, I think no one has really kind of um, hashed out the importance of violence uh, to the student movement, um, but also, um, I mean, mostly to the student movement. Uh, things have changed a good deal. I would say 10 years ago, when I kind of first started floating, uh, when I was first working on this, uh, I was met with a lot of resistance. Um, and there was a tendency to read my work as either being for or against. Uh, so either for the student movement, uh, 68ers, for the left, or against it. And... I noticed when I was back just uh, this year that now there's a general sense, there's an admission um, uh, that that violence, um, the, the fantasies of violence um, and very real kind of acts of violence um, are, are are something that the student movement, the protest movement, um, has has to has to deal with that were real, um, are part of its history. Um, but there is now kind of a confrontation and working through it that I, so I wonder if we'll see less and less of, of a fascination with the German autumn as, as a result. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, as they, as they work through it, it becomes less of a, um, uh, a weapon for conservatives to use against, uh, them, I think. Um, but it has, I mean, the whole thing, it is very alive, uh, I guess I consider one of my crowning moment, <laughs> crowning achievements is that I've been accused of both being a neoconservative and as being a terrorist sympathizer. So my analysis seems to please neither the right nor the left. So, Which must mean you're hitting on something. Something, I guess. <laughs> right. No, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you're a very busy person and you've been very generous with your time today. And, and I appreciate that enormously and our listeners will too. I wonder if maybe... Here, as a conclusion, if you could tell us a little bit about your next project and, uh, and, and how, maybe a little bit about, about what you're working on and how it's taken shape. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm on the, just in the early stages of it. Um, what I hope will be actually a fun project. Uh, hmm. It'll be a social, political, um, also cultural history um, 
of the German Germany's relations with with Italy, um, largely post forty five. I see in nineteen forty three to nineteen ninety, roughly. Um, it will will in my ideal, uh, it will be an entangled history. So it will involve the Italians as well as as the Germans. Um, but definitely a, a post-war relationship. I think the Italians have been quite crucial, um, or at least uh, the imagination of Italy, uh, or the German imagination of Italy, has been quite crucial um, in helping Germans kind of reconstruction, honestly, re- moral rehabilitation as well as kind of economic and political reconstruction. Um, I don't think it's uh, something that's been uh, delved into all that much. It tends to get folded into kind of longer German romances with Italy that, you know, go back well further than Gotha, but there's certainly that the kind of Zenzucht uh, 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 um, for, for Italy. Um, and I, I think there's something actually a very, very post-1945 story um, that will involve, you know, um, Italian guest workers' uh, position in, in West German society, but also, uh, say, our, our disillusioned 68ers who, who go to Italy uh, form communes there, um, or, you know, as politicians, uh, buy a house in Tuscany um, and, and live there because they think the air is freer in Italy. Um, so anyway, this is, this is, the next project is, is uh, well, I'm going to enjoy it, and it's still a little ill-defined, but. No, it sounds fantastic, and I mean, we don't get to, let's, let's be honest, in 20th century German history, we don't often get to do a lot of fun projects. So yeah. I, <laughs> I think I'm looking for a little light after terrorism, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Absolutely, and I hope you'll also get to take some trips to Italy. That would be nice. Yeah, yeah, that's hopefully in, in, in the future. Yeah. That's wonderful. <laughs> Karin Henschew, thank you so much. Uh, the book is called Terror and Democracy in West Germany. It was published in 2012 by Cambridge University Press. It is, at once, a political history of the FRG, the Federal Republic of Germany. It is a history of democracy, a history of political theory in the abstract and in practice. Uh, and it is a history of social movements, among many other things. I learned so much from it, and I think that you will, too. Karin, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. I, I enjoyed it. <laughs>